Our scripture today is found in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you, to worship with you. Uh, Let me also say just a very brief word of prayer as we start. Heavenly Father, we need you. We need you and depend upon you and want to know you better through your word. So be with us now in your spirit. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for interceding for us, even when we don't know how to come to you. Be there, uh, here in our midst right now. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been uh, studying the gospel in life this fall, and one of the things that we've been doing, uh, one of the reasons we've been doing that is that a lot of us have gone through life without understanding why why we're not uh, more effective in our faith, why our faith doesn't mean more to our day in day, day in and day out, right? And so what we've said is that Just like a bomb needs a detonator to release the explosive power into the world, so your faith, your spirituality, needs the gospel to be released into the world in very particular ways. And so what we're looking at is the gospel in your life over the weeks. And we're we're studying it on Sunday. We're also looking at the gospel in life um, in the home meetings each week. I wanted to start today by reflecting on um, an interview that I saw with a comedian named Louis C.K. And Louis C.K. was talking about why he didn't want to have his, his daughters to have cell phones. And uh, this is what he reflects. He says, you know, he's talking to Conan O'Brien. He says, you know, underneath everything in your life, there's that thing, that empty, forever empty. You know what I'm talking about? Yes? Yes. And just that knowledge that it's all for nothing, and that you're all alone, and you know it's down there, and it's sometimes when things clear away and you're not watching anything, you know, you're in your car and you start going, oh no, here it comes, I'm alone, and it starts to visit on you. And you know, just this sadness, life is tremendously sad, you know, just by being in it. And then you're driving and you're like, ah, and that's why we text and drive. I look around and pretty much 100% of the people are around texting and driving because people are are willing to take a life and risk taking their own life because they don't want to be alone for a second because it's so hard. I was in my car one time and I heard a Bruce Springsteen, Springsteen song and it gave me a kind of fall back to school kind of depression feeling and it made me really sad and I go, oh God, I'm getting sad And I get the phone and write hi to like 50 people. (laughs) And he goes on to say, no, I was getting the phone and I was getting that sad feeling. I was reaching for the phone. And I said, you know what? Don't. Just be sad. 
just stand in the way of it and let it hit you like a truck. And I let it come, and I pulled over, and I just cried. A lot of us approach life that way as though the fear of being alone, the fear that all this is, is underneath there, is primary, is the fundamental thing that would scare us and pull us down. But this passage is is important to us because in this passage what we're going to learn is that a community of Jesus, a community where Jesus dwells richly in his presence and power, a community of Jesus is the most powerful way, the most powerful witness that shows we're not alone. Now, how does his community show that we're not alone? God reveals himself in three ways that we're going to look at today, in various ways too, but we're going to look at three particular ways. In this passage, we're going to see that God reveals himself to us in his word about Jesus, in his word about Jesus. We're also going to see that God reveals himself to us in our life together. God reveals himself to us in our life together, in relationship with one another, and serving one another. And then also, God reveals himself to us in the joy and the awe of worship, in the joy and the awe of worship. So let's get in, let's dig in and spend a few moments studying the scriptures together. Uh, I pray that we depend upon God for understanding his word. We trust that he'll be here. Let's, uh, let's meet with him together as we study. Okay, uh, the first thing is that God reveals himself to us in his word about Jesus. You look at verse 42, what's it say? If you don't have your Bibles open, you can open your app to verse 42 of Acts 2. Verse 42 says, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. All right? Now, how does their devotion, I want to ask this, how does their devotion to the apostles' teaching show that God reveals himself to us in his word about Jesus? How does it show that? Well, first thing you have to do is ask, what do you mean that they're teaching, they were teaching about Jesus? What is that, teaching about Jesus? And you have to understand that God's people in this time, before Jesus came, were asking the same questions about being alone. They're asking the same kinds of questions about being alone. Listen to this. This was taken from the ESV Study Bible, the notes in the section on the, the uh, distance between the years when the Old Testament prophets stopped prophesying and when Jesus came on the scene. And here's what, it, here's what I found. With the Babylonian victory in 586 B.C., the Hebrews faced loss of land, monarchy, and the city of Jerusalem and their temple. And they lived under the direct control of foreign rulers without national identity. Bereft of their own rulers, the Jews found their religious system without political support for protection, implementation, or financial backing. And from this date onward, the majority of the Hebrews were scattered throughout the world. This scattering, the diaspora, or dispersion, presented a continual threat to racial, ethnic, and cultural identity. The latter included problems related to their distinctive religious outlook, including its ceremonial and dietary and other practices pertaining to ritual purity, Wherever they lived immediately after 586 B.C., the Hebrews faced a theological crisis. Why had the Lord permitted his people to be conquered? Was he still good, loving, caring, and able to protect them? In other words, where are we alone as God's people? Now, I know from talking to many of you that you struggle with that very feeling. God, am I alone? When are you going to show yourself? Are you going to be present When will you show that you're good and loving and caring and able to protect me? Now, God's people were looking for the Lord 
to reveal himself to them after this. But for over 400 years, there was silence. Silence. And you can see in the New Testament accounts, you can see that before Jesus was born, and even after his ministry began, but before Jesus was born, you can see this longing for the Lord to show himself. We feel alone, Lord. In Luke 1, verse 76, there's a prophecy about John the Baptist who's going to make a way for the Lord. He's going to be a prophet, the prophet to come to announce that the Lord is coming. And the prophecy goes like this, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Now listen, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. There was a longing for the Lord because he wasn't there. Where was he? From their perception, he wasn't there. They felt left alone. Or Luke 2, 25, it says this, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for what? What was he waiting for? As a man, a righteous man in Israel, devout in his faith, waiting on God. What is he waiting for? It says, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. In Hebrews 1, in those opening chapters, it says this, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, Or Jesus on the road after his resurrection. He's walking with some disciples who are discouraged. Jesus just died. And they're walking along the road and he had just risen, but they didn't know that yet. And they're walking along and they're discouraged and and they don't know what to make of it. Is God with us or not? What happened here? And Jesus says to them, he began to reason with them. He says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, so the Old Testament scripture, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And Peter had the audacity to write in Second Peter 1.3, his divine power, the Lord's divine power, has granted, us to all, granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through what? through a knowledge of him, Jesus, the Savior. So the apostles' teaching was about Jesus, and that's what the early church devoted themselves to. Everything rested in him. But devoted to, really? What are you devoted to? Think about it. What does your heart just get enraptured with? What are you, what are you lifted up with? What are you devoted to in your life? When you can think about anything that you want to think about, when you have a chance to be in solitude, you know, one's no, you know no one's looking. Where does your heart go? What are you devoted to? It says here that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, teaching about Jesus. Now, question. How can, how can I trust that I have in my Bible what the apostles taught about Jesus? How can I trust that? I'm going to make a couple of observations that are going to be a brief about this. And, and we're going to talk about the authority of God's word. Uh, tonight, there's a thing, there's a gathering of people called Theology on Tap. And we're going to look at this more specifically there. And it's a great discussion group. And we look at some writings on it and we sort of unpack it. So we don't have time to go over all of that here. I would Check your bulletin, check uh, in your back, Theology on Tap. It's been a great Great, great discussion, way to learn more about the gospel and faith. But a couple of brief observations 
just before we move on. It's a good idea to wrestle. Listen to me. It's a good idea to wrestle with whether or not you can trust the Gospels. It's a good idea. And by the Gospels, I mean the New Testament accounts of Jesus' life. It's a good idea to wrestle with whether or not they're historically reliable. And I'm speaking about the canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that the church recognized very early on as authentic and authoritative. Now, again, we're going to go into one one, uh, explanation here, but there are many more. I would invite you to read from uh, Tim Keller's Reason for God. There's a section just on the reliability of the Bible. How can we trust Scripture? And a lot of good things there. Also, in his footnote section, he, he... shows you the way to many more great resources to study it further. So take advantage of that. But uh, Keller writes this. It is often asserted that the New Testament Gospels were written so many years after the events happened that the writer's accounts of Jesus' life can't be trusted, that they are highly embellished, if not wholly imagined. And he goes on to say that there are several good reasons why the Gospel accounts should be considered historically reliable rather than legends. But again, we're going to only aim to cover one this morning. So, the basic thing is this, that I want to share with you. The timing, one thing that's good to consider, is that the timing is far too early for the Gospels to be legend. Now listen, this is what he writes. He says, the canonical Gospels were written at the very most 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death. And he goes on to explain later in his footnote section, virtually all historians agree on this today. In the 18th and early 19th centuries, scholars in Europe were deeply influenced by the rationalism of the Enlightenment and therefore came to the biblical text with the premises that the miraculous events and elements in the Gospels must have been added much later to, uh, to the original factual accounts. And since they knew that legendary accounts of historical events had to be formulated a long time after the events. They posited that the Gospels were written at least 100 years or more after Jesus' death. But listen, most of the scholars, most over the, sorry, but over the last century, manuscript evidence has forced even the most critical scholars to conclude that they were all written much sooner. Paul's letters, written just 15 to 25 years after the death of Jesus, provide an outline of all the events in Jesus' life found in the Gospels, his miracles, claims, crucifixion, and resurrection. This means that the biblical accounts of Jesus' life were circulating within lifetimes of hundreds of people who had been present at the events of his ministry. The Gospel author Luke, for example, claims that he got his account of Jesus' life from eyewitnesses who were still alive. And he says in another place, go and ask them. You can see that kind of thinking in Mark when he talks about uh, the names of people. You know, Rufus, the son of so-and-so, who was carrying this. You can go and check, is the implication. So think about that. That's one thing to consider. There are many other good reasons to consider, but I want you to also understand that these reasons won't be enough. No matter where you sit, you can go after good reasons for believing the apostles' teaching or the apostles' teaching and devote yourself to them. But just going after scholarly details like we just talked about, the example we just talked about, won't be enough. Why? And again, we're going to talk about this more in Theology on Tap tonight, but this is what one writer wrote. The testimony of the Spirit is superior to reason. For as God alone can properly bear witness to his own words, so these words will not obtain full credit in the hearts of men until they are sealed by the inwardly testimony of the Spirit. The same Spirit, therefore, who spoke by the mouth of the prophets must penetrate our hearts in order to convince us that they are faithfully delivered the message which they were divinely entrusted. Do you hear that? What we're saying is that you're not alone 
Because God has revealed himself. And if God has revealed himself, then you have relationship with God. You don't have an abstract theory that you sort of parse out on paper or look in a, uh, a spreadsheet and sort of add up the arguments. Who in your life do you relate to like that, personally, intimately? If you have an intimate relationship with God, you may not hold him underneath any kind of authority. His authority is held over you. And he's a loving authority. And he's a gracious authority. And he gives you life as he does it. So don't come to the apostles' teaching with some sort of standard that you think can trump them. Explore it. It's good to doubt. It's good to wrestle with. But realize in the end, it's a matter of relationship with God and the Holy Spirit penetrating your heart so that you know that it's true. I don't know how to make it more plain than that. Gospel Christianity is not about religion. It's not about things that we do. It's about, first and foremost, a personal relationship with the Lord and his spirit dwelling in you. It's about being dead and being brought to life as Jeff opened worship with. Do you know that? Uh, One of the readings we'll look at tonight, the author says this, for as the aged or those whose sight is defective, when any books, however fair, is set before them, though they perceive that there's something written, are scarcely able to make out two consecutive words. But when aided by glasses begin to read distinctly, so scripture gathering together the impressions of deity, which till then lay confused in our mind, dissipates the darkness and shows us the true God clearly. Clearly. You need the teaching of the apostles. The early church devoted themselves to it. You need to devote yourself to it as well. Okay, so we're not alone because God reveals himself to us in his word about Jesus, but also God reveals himself to us in our life together. It says they devoted, in verse 42, it says they devoted themselves also to fellowship. Fellowship. Now, how does their devotion to fellowship show us that God is with us in our relationships with one another? One of the things you need to know Look at verse 46 for a second. How, did they, how often did they work at this? How often do they work at fellowship, at the, at the process of relating with one another, the process of being in one another's lives and being intentional? And I've been thinking a lot about money lately in the sense that money's valuable to us. We go to work to get it. We uh, establish our time around getting it. And then I started to realize that, you know, your time maybe even more valuable than money, in the sense that you only spend time on what you want to spend time on. You only spend time on what's most important to you. And it says here that they devoted themselves, they organized their time, not only around the, the apostles' teaching, but with fellowship with one another. They worked at it. 46 says, day by day, day by day. Daily, you need to be considering how to love one another better. Where you fail where the grace of the gospel can overcome your failings because you're not in yourself. You're in the faithfulness of your Savior, Jesus. So they worked at it in a regular way. We meet in home meetings for a reason. It's so that we can stay connected. It's so that we can work at it. So that we can do the one anothering practices that are listed in the New Testament. Do you know how many one another passages there are? There's so many. And that's about our living our life together, intentional. So when you sit down to your calendar to write out your week, Who among you, who among us, is on your calendar? Who's on your calendar? Who are you looking after? Who are you knowing well enough to enter in with? Day by day, you have to work at that. 
but also there was economic as well as spiritual um, working. We worked at economical uh, stability rather than um, just spiritual stability day by day. Verse 44 says they had all things in common. Verse 45 says that selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone who, as he had need. Let me break there for a second. In the home study for this week, one of the things you'll find there as you read and prep for your home meeting together, we read this. In the book of Acts, the main context for telling others about Jesus was in the household. The word for household means a lot more than the nuclear family. A Greco-Roman household included not only several generations of the same family, but also servants, their families, friends, and business associates. And so a household then was a web of relationships held in common. Kinship affinity with relatives. We had geographical affinity with neighbors. We had professional affinity with coworkers. We had uh, associational affinity, special interest colleagues. We had just plain friends. So the characteristics, what are the characteristics of a web of this kind of relationships as we devote our time to fellowship? One is that your life is under observation by those who don't believe. Do you know that the, the Christian community functioning as it ought, pouring itself out in love and service for those around it and within it. Just as Jesus loved and served us by pouring himself out for us, the Christian community functioning like that, applying the gospel to every facet of life, is one of the healthiest places in the world for somebody who's seeking spiritually to be. It's important. This context is important. Your home meetings are important. The way that you think about the gospel in every facet of your life is important. So your life is under observation by those who don't believe. Your life is the attractor and the evidence of the truth of the faith. People should get very good view of how Christianity looks in your life, how it works. Another thing that's interesting about this is that the other person, the person searching, the spiritual searcher, is in the driver's seat. They get to raise the questions and determine the speed of the process. When your community, based in Jesus' presence, is the place where they get to know who Jesus is, who God is. And the humbling nature of the gospel leads us to approach people without superiority and with deep respect. You know, one of the things that's hard, I think, especially for those of you who have grown up in Christian context and have felt the weight of the checklist that you somehow have to just keep your life looking a certain way to please God, and you have to work really hard to keep God's favor. As you come out from underneath that and you learn grace, one of the things that you start to recognize is that you can have non-Christian friends who are much better husbands, much better wives, much better colleagues and employees, much better students, much better people, to be honest, than you are. So it's not the checklist that people are coming in our midst to see. Although eventually we should see less and less of a gap in our life and what we believe. We all have that gap. But through the spirit of Jesus, that becomes less and less. When people come into our midst, the nature of the gospel leads us to approach others in our midst without superiority. There's no reason in ourselves that Jesus should bring us into his kingdom. That he should have sacrificed himself and died that he should have overcome the power of sin and death so that we might live. There's no reason in us 
There is reason in his mercy and his grace and his peace. And that is available for anyone around you. It's available. Watch out for superiority and interact with deep respect. We know that this is not just, you know, well, some of you might ask who have grown up in the church, isn't this just fellowship mean us who are in the church like believers who have been walking in line with each other and who believe the gospel? No. We know from example in history that the early Christians thought of others around them before they thought of themselves. When the, when the great plague swept through the Roman Empire and people were dying left and right and the Roman citizens who had means were leaving and fleeing the empire and leaving family members in the street to die, who stayed behind so that they wouldn't die? Who stayed behind to nurse the others so that they would get well? Who stayed behind because they knew that their God poured himself out, giving, giving everything so that they wouldn't die? that they wouldn't be separated from God. Who did that? The early Christians did. The early Christians did. So this kind of thinking, it's not just Philadelphia, love of brother. Remember, we've said all along, it's Philoxenia, love of other, love of stranger. So this kind of fellowship goes way beyond what we normally think. Illustration. I was speaking with a friend who's a... Um, in-covenant member of our community and lives in Brewerytown. And my friend was talking about the infinite amounts of needs, infinite amounts of needs that are present before his face every day. And he was talking about all of those needs with tears. And the question in many of our minds is, how do we begin? How do we begin with that? And we began thinking. And I I began talking with other people And we're going to talk and discuss and pray with our deacons who are leading the charge in all of this. But wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be representative of Christ's presence here in this place if we would just start taking some inventory of the needs we see around us and see who in our midst could meet those needs and sign up to do it? The person I was talking to has a neighbor whose roof has a hole in it. Winter's coming. I know that there are at least enough handy people here that we could get that done in a couple of hours. Or another neighbor in the same block who can't eat and feed their family. I know how to cook for $10 for 25 people. I could pass that on. We could do that together. Do you understand that it's not just verbal, it's not less than verbal proclamation of the gospel. Don't hear me saying that. But if we're going to take seriously witness... And we're going to go back and look at the early church. We have to understand that we meet with God's spirit and that sends us into the public realm, not just the private realm. It's not just our homes we meet in. It's the city that we're working for the benefit for. It's those who are perishing. It's those who yet need to know the the wonderful release of knowing God as their friend, as the lover of their souls, as the one who stood in for them. Maybe you need to know God that way. So we're not alone because God reveals himself to us in his word about Jesus and our life together. But finally, God reveals himself to us in the joy and the awe of our worship. The joy and the awe of our worship. How does their worship and awe and joy show that God is with us? Look at verse 46 and 47. Look for a second because I'm going to get another drink. 
46 and 47, one of the things you see there is a general spirit of joy permeating their meetings. Permeating their meetings. A general sense of spirit of joy. God reveals himself through the antidote, through the antidote of isolation and sadness. What is the antidote? The joy and awe of his presence. Do you know that God meets with us when we gather here? God himself dwells in our midst. Jesus himself shows up when we have the Lord's Supper. And look, they met and they ordered their life and they focused their life around an expression of this joy. There was joy in us and awe in worship because the Lord Jesus, who had perfect joy, and he had perfect communion with God the Father and God the Spirit. Lord Jesus, God the Son, came in and broke in. And when he went to the cross, he went without the awe and the joy of God's presence. And he was left without it. And judgment was poured out on him so that you could be lifted up into God's presence and have the joy and awe that you have, that you have the intimacy and the relationship that you have. He won that for you. He won that for you. And so the early church, you'll see, in 46, there was small group worship. It emphasized joy and gladness, right? There's small group. We meet in our home meetings. The Lord Jesus is why you come to meet in those, to experience him in your midst, in his presence and power. And there's glad and generous hearts, and there's praising God as they broke bread in their homes. And they practiced the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread. And they devoted themselves to praying. We're going to spend the entire month of November with emphasizing what prayer is and doing it together. And making sure that we're depending on God and thinking his thoughts after him and all of the things that go into authentic prayer because of who Jesus is and what he's done. And then there's large group worship where we emphasize awe. Verse 43, we see that. And you notice that they did so. They continued to meet in the temple courts. There are public people there. People are spiritually seeking. People are still hungry, feeling God is missing. People are feeling alone. And they continue to meet there. And it's in these ways in community that by nature is inviting to others. By nature, the gospel is inviting those who are on the outside to those who are alone. This community life of devotion and fellowship and worship was attractive to the non-Christians. God revealing himself in these ways in a community that is by nature inviting the others who are alone, who are isolated. 47 says having favor with all the people, living their lives in this way. Having favor with all the people, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Friends, God reveals that we're not alone through Jesus and what he did. Our love for God is based on his love for us. God reveals that we're not alone by giving us life with one another that is reflected in Jesus. Loving others is based on his love for us. God reveals that we're not alone by giving us joy and awe in worship, taking time for joy of the Lord in small groups, and gathering with awe in public for the benefit of those on the outside, inviting them in. The temple courts that we see here, entering in to love the city around us. And so the persons in that early community were incorporated into the community life of the church. It says they were added to their number. We were added to the number of people in God's family if you come through Jesus because he was excluded from God's family on the cross. 
He was excluded from God's family. He was excluded from being called son. He was excluded from being called brother and friend. He was God's enemy on the cross in your place so that you could be God's friend and brother and son and daughter and sister and child. Do you understand that? Have you tasted that? Has it moved from theoretical knowledge in your head down to explosively being true in the middle of your innermost being and therefore out into your life? And is it not just you alone, isolated? Are we doing that together? The Lord has wonderful things in store for us. Wonderful things. Let's follow him here. Any roadblocks that would stand in the way, let's kick them down. Let's follow the spirit of the Lord dwelling in our midst to show forth his glory, his love, his peace and grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you now mindful that we are just not capable. Mindful that we fall down in so many ways. Mindful that we, there's such a gap between where we need to be and where we are. And yet you're tender with us and you care about us and you're loving to us and you pursue us. Be with us, Father. Spirit and Son. Dwell with us richly. Transform us from the inside out that we might bear glorious witness in practical ways all around us. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.